All right, everybody, welcome to uh, Summer Seminar Session 3, the indoor version, because I'm a avid indoorsman. Uh, this is a wonderful place. It's, it's wet outside, we're under a tornado watch, you know, this, uh, yeah. Um, but thanks, thanks to the Heights for hosting us once again. Let's give it, they can hear us now. Let's clap for them. Thank you, Heights. Uh, this is a lovely setting. If anybody makes faces while they walk by, please let me know. I will scowl at them. Um, well, I was going to say, if you want a handout, I printed 12. And so if you want to uh, hand out, you can have one. There's pens back there, too. Otherwise, it's posted on our Slack channel. Um, you can get it, get it uh, virtually, electronically, whatever. However you say that. All right, we ready to go? Thanks for being here, everybody. Got your handouts, you got your pens. Also, go Bucks, go Bucks. They got a game tonight. You'll be out in time if you if you're interested in that sort of thing. In fact, if anyone wants to go somewhere from here and watch it, I'll I'll be game. Um, all right, as we as we get started, let me pray for us. Father, we are thankful uh, for this time to be together, and uh, Lord, we're here because we want to know more about you. As you revealed yourself in your word, uh, not just to know more things about you, but so that we can be better lovers of you and of our neighbor. And so help us now. Thank you that we're not alone in trying to figure you out. You've given us your scriptures, uh, even though they're sometimes difficult to comprehend. Um, you've given us uh, able guides. You've given us books like this one that we're walking through. But most of all, you've given us your spirit. And so I pray your spirit would help us now and illuminate our minds and our hearts uh, to understand you. We pray in the name of Christ. Amen. All right. Summer Seminar 2021 is about the drama of Scripture. This book right here that I'm walking you through. Uh, it's called Finding Our Place in the Biblical Story, subtitled. Uh, and it's all about the grand story of the Bible. And uh, yeah, I want to give you a little bit of a recap as we get into it, because several of you have been here. Maybe this is your, new, your first time here. But the big idea is we're trying to find out the big story of the Bible. Like, what is, what is the story from Genesis to Revelation? And uh, I, didn't, I didn't put it on this recap, but we spent all of session one talking about why that's important, that it is known as a grand story. Because if we chop up the Bible into little fragmented, uh, you know, little bits and stories here and there, it, the, the grand story ceases to shape our lives. And, and the little fragmented pieces can get subsumed into other dominant cultural stories. And so that Christianity ceases to be the comprehensive story that it should be, if that makes sense. And so that's, that's why it's so important to know what the big story of the Bible is all about. And so, so far we've been saying, how do we get our bearings? How do we understand? Because again, uh, the Bible doesn't read like a novel, unfortunately. It's not even in chronological order. <laughs> and so because it doesn't read like a novel, it's sometimes hard to understand. So we talked about if, 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 this, if the story of the Bible is a building, like what are our double door front entrances? Like how do we, how, what's, what's the entrance into the story? And we're saying the double doors are kingdom and covenant. So the, the big picture is about the kingdom of God coming to earth. Right? That's why Jesus taught us to pray, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That's the story. The kingdom of God is about the reign of God extending over his people and eventually over all creation. And then, so that's one door, kingdom. And the other door, covenant, is how that kingdom is worked out in relationship to people. So covenant is particularly about the special relationships that God makes with his people as he works out his plans for his kingdom. 
And covenant is going to be really important tonight because we're doing the, the entire history of the Old Testament. And so covenants with Abraham and with Moses and with David, these become really important, like these special relationships through which God is working out his kingdom. And then we step back and said, okay, how do we understand the structure of the story from a big picture standpoint? And we broke it down into six acts. So act one, uh, again, story of the kingdom. God establishes his kingdom. That's creation. Act two, there's rebellion in the kingdom. That's the fall. Act three, we're covering tonight. The uh, redemption is initiated when the king chooses Israel. There's two scenes in that, a people for the king and then a land for his people. And then there's a nice interlude, like every good uh, play has. Uh, as a kingdom story, waiting for an ending, the time in between the Old Testament and the New Testament. Then Act 4, uh, redemption is accomplished with the coming of the king. Act 5 is the mission of the church, spreading the news of the king, for, first from Jerusalem to Rome, and then into all the world, which is, that's where we are right now, by the way. Act 5, scene 2. And then the final act to come is the return of the king, when redemption will be completed. So, if you were here last time, we did Acts 1 and 2, which was uh, a massive undertaking, almost as massive as tonight's undertaking to try to tell the entire story of Israel. But to give you just a big, very, very big picture um, from where we're at, God establishing his kingdom in Act 1. Remember, the goal of Act 1 is to give essential background information, introduce the important characters, which is God and us, <laughs> and establish the situation that will be disrupted by the events about to unfold. So what we saw in Genesis 1 and 2 is a very stable situation, a very good creation. And then the human actors uh, begin their calling, their work uh, in the garden, and history begins. A um, couple of quotes on there to understand what the scene was like, like setting the scene in, in chapter 1 as God establishes his kingdom. The Bible depicts this created material world as the very theater of God's glory. That's why he created it. It's his kingdom, it's his reign, and he made it all to show off his glory uh, in his kingdom. And then human, human beings, you and I, were created to be royal stewards of this creation. I love this. To develop the hidden potentials in God's creation so that the whole of it may celebrate his glory. That's what we get to do. Uh, made in his image to, to make something of this, of this world. Um, and we are made for God, but we're also made for one another and for the creation. And that's what we see happening in Genesis 1 and 2. So the summary of, of Act 1 of the whole, at its beginning, the creation is redolent with shalom. That's the Old Testament word. It's a really important word. That's the Old Testament word. It means peace, but it means more than peace. It's like the rich, integrated, relational wholeness that God intends for all of his creation. And the life of Adam and Eve is all about shalom. They walk with God. They have each other. The garden provides everything that they need as they work it. There is no storm or cloud on this horizon, no hint of trouble to come. What could possibly go wrong? Well, you know the story. Summary of Act 2. There's rebellion in the kingdom. This is Genesis 3 through 11. Again, very big picture stuff, but we are introduced to this mysterious enemy, to God's plan who tempts Adam and Eve. And it's really important, the second bullet point, to understand what the temptation actually is and therefore what the, uh, the fundamental nature of sin is. It's vital to see that the tree represents the temptation to be autonomous from the Greek word altos, self, and nomos, law. Adam and Eve can't obey God or they can defy him. They can yield to God's law and enjoy life or they can try to find their own way apart from his instruction and experience death. The temptation they face through the serpent is to assert their autonomy, to become a law unto themselves. Autonomy means choosing oneself as the source for determining what is right and wrong rather than relying on God's word for direction. Like I said, the fundamental nature of sin, if we understand the story, 
It's a quest for autonomy. This is a desire to separate ourselves from God. And when they do that, the result is death. And not just physical death, but especially relational, right? A distortion of all relationships with God, with each other, with the creation, but especially with the vital relationship with God. And so from Genesis 3 on to 11, you just see the spiraling of sin, right? Uh, Sin is taking over and ruining God's creation. Everything that God created is good. Sin distorts, right? Wine is good, but then Noah gets drunk and embarrasses himself, right? Poetry is good, but Lamech writes a poem about killing a, a young boy and gloating about it, right? All these things that are good. Family is good, and yet everybody's, you know, the first two brothers in the Bible kill each One kills the other. I was going to say kill each other, but you can't do that. Yes, you can. Anyway, you know what I mean. So you see, like, this spiraling condition until finally Babel in Genesis 11. And Babel, uh, I'm going to read this little um, summary at the end. Babel stands as the monument to the perennial human desire to build our own kingdom apart from God. But God would have none of it, none of this false center for human existence. And so he scatters the builders of Babel. Name in Scripture stands for identity. With this city and tower, the people have sought a false identity, a reputation built on human autonomy, God's response is to judge their sin for what it is and to put a stop to their ambitious, idolatrous building program. But, as we've seen again and again, judgment is accompanied by mercy. Though Genesis 11 marks a climax in the advance of human sinfulness within the creation, Genesis 12 marks yet another new beginning as God steadfastly pursues his purpose for his creation. Any questions about Acts 1 and 2? God created this great creation. We figure out who we are and what we're made for, and then we see how it all went to pot because of our human autonomy and all going, um, building up to this massive effort in, in the Tower of Babel where we together are like, let's build something to our own glory. Let's make a name for ourselves. Any questions about that? Make sense? All right. Let's dig in. <laughs> this is Act 3 about redemption initiated. And yes, we are going to cover from Genesis 11 to the end of the Old Testament. So hold on to your hats. Uh, uh, Disclaimer, we're not going to say everything there is to say about the Bible, but I'm going to try to give you the big picture of what is happening when God chooses these people, starting with Abraham and then the people that would come from him, the nation of Israel. Why did he call them? What was the purpose of that? How do we trace that story throughout the Old Testament? And that's important for our story. Don't forget, this is our story, right? If you're a Christian, it says your father is Abraham. Right? So this isn't just the Jewish story. This is, this is our story. And so this is, this is our family, so to speak of. But it also helps us understand like, some important things. So one of you in the survey we put out said, I want to understand how to understand like, modern Israel. Like, what does that mean in, um, for us as Christians? Like, how do we understand that? So hang on to your hats. We're going to move quickly. Like we did last time, I'm going to like teach through it, probably take about 35 minutes or so, and then we'll discuss after that small, in small groups first and then, then all together, and we'll get out before the tip-off for the bucks. Sound good? I think I'm the only one that cares about that, but... Yeah, I, I forgot, of course, of course, Jack. All right. <laughs> All right, let's remind ourselves in the story, what does Act 3 uh, function as? Act 3 
is where the main action of the drama takes place. And that actually makes sense if you think of your Bible. This is the largest chunk of the Bible that we're going to be talking about. I had a seminary professor who used to say the New Testament is the, uh, the appendix to the Bible. Like so much of the story happens right here of what we're covering. So where the main drama takes place, the initial conflict of Act 2 intensifies and grows even more complicated until the climax of Act 4. The conflict, the conflict in this story is between human sin and God's good purposes for the creation. It intensifies and complications arise. So as we step into Act 3, the main question is, what's God going to do, right? How is God going to redeem his creation that is turned from him and is building monumental towers to their own glory, right? And, but the main complication is, as you see that you heard that word several times, it gets complicated in Act chapter 3, in Acts, in Act 3, not the book of Acts, Act 3. Uh, the complication is this. God chooses a people through whom he's going to redeem the world, but their own continual decline into sin makes them unable to fulfill their calling. You see how that gets complicated, right? He chooses a people through whom he's going to redeem everything, but then they themselves need redeeming, right? And they are redeemed, but they need continual redeeming. They, they never rise to their vocation and the calling that God's given to them. It's like somebody, I, I heard somebody re- recently who hired an outside uh, to like work through an abusive power situation in the church and then like the consultant himself was like abusing power like that's that's complicated right that that's kind of what's happening here in act chapter three the people who are chosen to bring blessing to the world are themselves like struggling to live up to their calling so let's break it down they break it down into two scenes scene one is a people for the king so let's talk about these people and this starts the story of abraham Remember that, that covenant concept? Here's the covenant of Abraham. This is, remember, God's special relationships through which he's going to work out his kingdom. And this begins with Abraham. This is a new beginning and a new hope. Abraham and his descendants are the major concern of the rest of the book of Genesis. And I love actually how it connects with what just happened in chapter 11, how it connects to Babel. Look at this quote, this first bullet point there. The peoples of the earth have sought to make a name for themselves with the construction of the Tower of Babel. Now, however, God promises that he will make Abraham's name great and make him into a great nation. The trophies that the people of Babel attempted to take for themselves, fame, security, and a heritage for the future, are God's free gift to Abraham. Did you notice that? So Genesis 11 is, let's let's, let's make our name great. And then Genesis 12 is God saying, I'm going to make your name great. Um, it's like everything you wanted, but it comes as a free gift from God, which is obviously a, everything's going to, there's going to be a whole lot of foreshadowing of the gospel that is to come. But again, what purpose is that? Like, that sounds great. He's going to make a, he's going to make Abraham into a great person and from him a great nation. But what, what is the purpose of all that? Well, God, God narrows his redemptive focus down to one man, one nation, but his ultimate purpose is to bring redemptive blessing to the whole creation. If you read Genesis 1 through 3, that's the idea. I'm choosing you, but the ultimate purpose, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to bless you like crazy. I'm going to make your name great, but it is in, unto the end that you will bless the nations, right? You're an instrument through which I'm going to bless the world. I love these authors say this is the theological blueprint for the redemptive history of the world. <laughs> if you want to see God's blueprint of how he's going to work this out, chooses one man, one nation, and through them to bless the whole world. And that means from the very beginning, God's people are to be missionary. They are chosen to be a channel of blessing to others. This is actually the purpose of election. Sometimes we talk about, you know, election is this reform doctrine about how people are chosen or whatever else. But it's interesting. The Bible talks about 
election as you were elected unto mission. Like not into some special privileged club, right? You're elected unto the blessing of other people. That's the purpose of your election. That's the purpose of Abraham's election. And this is really important. There are three main promises made to Abraham in this covenant. And, and this is going to form like, you're going to hear these things over and over and over again in the Old Testament. These three things. Number one, he's, he's promised God's presence. This personal relationship. We've talked before about how special this is. That God is the supreme God would want to relate personally to people. Like no other stories in the ancient Near East had that, right? They all had supreme gods, but they were supreme gods. They didn't care anything about human beings. They were just their their footstool, their slaves. God is the only one who says, I am the chief supreme God, but I want to relate personally to my people. So this covenant speaks of a deeply personal relationship with God and his people, a relationship so close that God, God may be thought of as binding or tying himself to them and then to him. That's what a covenant is. God's favorite expression of this is, I will be your God and you will be my people. This, this covenant that God makes with Abraham, it is sealed with a sign, a sign of circumcision. And even that sign, as curious as that is, is this permanent marking of the body is a way that's probably meant to signify the permanence of God's relationship with his people who will come from Abraham, right? This is, this is a permanent sign. This is, I want to be your God, but not only yours, but your sons, your sons' sons, and to your whole family, like into eternity. So that's the first thing. God promises your presence. My presence is going to be with you. And you see this, right, throughout the story over and over again of God um, choosing, like, visible things through which he shows I am present with you. Like, remember the pillar of of fire and cloud as they were coming out. The tabernacle, this traveling version of 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 a worship sanctuary. And then the temple itself. All of those are signs of God's presence with his people, his desire to dwell with them. Secondly, what God promises to Abraham is a people, right? From you, I'm going, to grow, I'm going to grow this one family into a great nation. And again, we're skipping over large chunks here, but it goes Abraham and then his son Isaac. And then Isaac has two sons, Jacob and Esau, but Jacob's the chosen one. It's really complicated. Uh, and then Jacob has 12 sons, and that becomes the 12 tribes of Israel, the heads of the 12 tribes through which this nation is like springing into being, right? Um, so God promises him a people. And then God promises him a place, a land. So God calls Abraham, Abram at that time, to leave his country, Ur, his people, and his father's house to go to the land that God will show him. That's in Genesis 12, 1 through 3. So hang on to those three things. Like we're going to keep presence, people, place, right? These things show up over and over and over and over again in God's promise to Abraham and then through his whole people. Um, So the whole rest of the Pentateuch, that's Genesis to Deuteronomy, is about whether these promises are fulfilled. And they all are partially, sort of, kind of, but the formation of God's people as he he brings them out and works these promises out. But the key thing that he communicates to Abraham, and this is important for us too, is uh, in this covenant relationship, you're going to have to trust me. Because there's going to be a lot of times where it doesn't seem like my promises are coming true, you know? You know Abraham's story, he waited 25 years before he ever got pregnant when God said, you're going to have a son. Like, and this whole thing is like, you're going to have to trust me. And the drama we see worked out in Genesis 12 to 25 is trust is hard. It's hard to trust in God. Dependence upon him is hard. It's, it's way harder to come by than we think it is. And again, you got this, this interplay, this battle between like remarkable faith sometimes in Abraham and Sarah and then asserting their autonomy, right? What happens when Abraham gets tired of waiting on Isaac? 
he sleeps with the handmaid and gets a child a different way, right? There's this, that's seeking, asserting his own autonomy once again. I'll do things my way. I'll, it's choosing the fruit all over again. You see this drama kind of working itself out. And then, like, all this stuff is really hopeful, but even within this chosen family, you're seeing the patterns of sin, right? Still, still prevalent, especially in the breakdown of family relationships, right? Jacob and Esau have a terrible relationship as Jacob cheats his brother out of his birthright. Then you got Jacob and Laban. All this, Jacob's a pretty, pretty swindling kind of guy. Um, and then you got Joseph and his brothers. You remember that story? They, yeah, yeah, the heel, the heel grabber. Um, and you got Joseph and his brothers. You know, they sell him into slavery and stuff. Like that's, you're still seeing the breakdown, right? The, all this original sin is still working itself out, even within the chosen family. And yet, through all that turmoil and mess, there's one constant which God remains faithful to His promise to Abraham. So that's how it starts, right? It kicks off with Abraham, these promises he makes to him. And now, jumping ahead, you see the formation of the people through the Exodus. So the Exodus in the Old Testament is the most significant event of, of the Old Testament. By the way, I don't know if you know this, but there, uh, if you want to know like, when the Bible was written, there are, there are three main events. And then there's a flurry of writing after those. And so those things are the Exodus. And there's a bunch of writing, including the prehistory in Genesis. And then there's the Exile. There's a bunch of writing, and then there's Easter, and there's a bunch of writing. So that's, that's the story of the Bible, right? Exodus, exile, Easter. And that's when all God inspires all the writers to come after that. So Exodus is, is the first one, and it's huge. But notice, this is 400 years after Abraham, and Israel has grown. They've grown into this substantial people group. This is the fulfillment of the promise, right? They're becoming a nation. And yet, you remember they had to go to Egypt uh, to, to take care of themselves in a famine, and then this new Pharaoh comes up who doesn't remember Joseph, and he fears how large these people are becoming, and so he begins to oppress them. And making a very, very long story short, uh, this oppression, although it's terrible and it seems to be an obstacle to God fulfilling his promise, it actually, paradoxically, becomes the impetus for Israel's escape from Egypt, heading to their, to their own land, right? It actually fulfills God's purposes. When they're suffering under the Spain, they cry out, and it says in Exodus 2.24 that God remembers his covenant, right? That's why he acts, because he remembers, I made these promises to Abraham, and this is Abraham's people, so I'm going to deliver them. Well, how does he deliver them? He raises up uh, a liberator by the name of Moses. And so here's the next relationship that accomplishes God's kingdom, is the covenant with Moses. Uh, you, you got the whole backstory of Moses, how he gets raised up as the liberator. Um, you got, now you're introduced to the next promise fulfillment, right? Now we have a people. Now we need a place, the land. And this, this is where this language starts to come in. I'm going to lead you out of this slavery in Egypt, and I'm going to give you your own land. I'm going to give you uh, the promised land. And you also got this introduction to who Yahweh is. Um, again, he's, he's been known throughout in the previous history, but now this is his personal name to say, I, I am the God who's going to rescue you. This mysterious name, which roughly means I will be who I am, which is kind of confusing. But if you put it in context, understood, this is his name to say, I'm, I'm not just present with you now. I'm going to be faithfully God for you, this people, in the history that is to follow. So Israel does not need to be concerned about divine arbitrariness or capriciousness. God can be counted on to be who he is. And again, you've got to hold this out in, in light of the other gods that were served in the ancient Near East in that time. They were all capricious. They were all like, maybe I like you one day, maybe I don't like you, like depending upon what you do. And God's saying, I'm not like that. 
I will be who I will be. You can count on me as I lead you out and lead you towards this promised land. So all this is connected to the promise made to Abraham, though. God made promises to Abraham, and now he demonstrates his faithfulness to those promises by rescuing the nation that is descended from Abraham, taking them out of slavery and placing them in the land he promised them. The Israelites' new home is a place that God himself has chosen as his dwelling, right? There's presence again, where he's chosen to dwell with them, the sanctuary he has established. All these phrases indicate that the land is like a second Eden, a place in which the Lord will dwell among his people. And so as you trace the story forward, three months after they leave Egypt, they arrive at Mount Sinai, which is interestingly where God first met Moses. But now he's not calling just Moses to be a special, uh, his special people. He's calling an entire nation of people. But again, why has God chosen them? Why has he done all this? Why has he brought them out of, Israel, of Egypt? Why has he parted the Red Sea? Why has he done all these amazing things? Exodus 9, 19, 5 and 6 is echoes of Abraham, right? It's not just for you. God has called Israel for a special purpose. Out of all the nations, they are chosen to be God's treasured possession. But as we noted with Abraham, election is not just for privilege. It is for service, for the sake of the nations. If they live under his reigns, they will be a kingdom of priests, a holy nation, which a kingdom of priests is automatically others-oriented, Right? Um, we're going we're gonna to represent something here that the other nations of the world can see who God is and what it means to be a human being flourishing under God's reign. It's always for others. And that's where you see this holiness bit start to come in. Um, this understanding of this is a, an attribute of God that he is ultimately set apart. And therefore, it has to be an attribute of his people. God is special, different from all that he has created and full of goodness. And Israel, therefore, is called by God to be holy to be different from all the other nations, to be God's own special people. The Israelites will really be different only if they live in a way that fits this aspect of God's own character. Interesting, holiness has an element of purity to it, like we, we tend to think about, but holiness mostly means you're set apart. You're different. In the way that God is in a category of his own, so God's people are supposed to be in a category of their own. But again, not to withdraw from others, not to be better than others, but to bless others and to show the world what human flourishing looks like. It's always unto others, which is a huge theme in this. So, Israel is called to mediate between the Lord and all nations. Israel is to be a display people, a showcase to the world of how being in covenant with Yahweh changes the people. As the Israelites obey God, they will demonstrate what life under God's reign looks like. The nations, we will be able to catch a glimpse of God's plan for all peoples. This is to be such a full and rich human life that the nations of the earth will be drawn to it. In this way, Israel will fulfill the Abraham, Abrahamic covenant, covenant to bless all nations. Does that make sense? So in that context, that's where the Ten Commandments come from. And we did a whole series on this, but the Ten Commandments are good news. They tell Israel how to live so as to please God and to display to the nations God's creational purposes for humanity. So, from here, and this is really important, like this puts a stake in the ground for everything that happens next for Israel. The history of Israel from this point on is in reality merely a commentary upon the degree of fidelity with which Israel adhered to this Sinai-given vocation. The remainder of the Old Testament narrates how faithful or unfaithful Israel is to this call. And then, <laughs> skipping through large chunks of the, of the, of the Old Testament, yeah, the rest of Exodus is act all about the tabernacle, which again, what is that about? Presence, right? 
God's desire to dwell with his people. Nearly a third of Exodus is taken up with these detailed plans for the tabernacle, which is important. That means all these exhaustive details make a really important point. Such a residence cannot be taken lightly, right? God's going to come dwell among you. It's pretty important. We want to we get that right. And so almost all of that is taken up with this portable sanctuary uh, called the tabernacle. Uh, and then the very end of Exodus, God's glory comes and dwells in the tabernacle in this like, you know, crazy smoke scene, you know, like <laughs> the God descending to dwell uh, in this tabernacle that they, that, this, they, that they built. And so the drama at the end of Exodus is this. However, having God living among you uh, in the people's midst is not going to be easy or straightforward. So how in the world are these sinful mortals going to cope with this awesome and holy reality among them? The answer is the book of Leviticus. <laughs> this is how you live with a holy God. Uh, Leviticus is all about protocol for maintaining a right relationship with the king, whose royal residence is within Israel's camp. So Leviticus gets down into the nitty-gritty, right? What do you do? When you sin, what do you do when you sin intentionally? What do you do when you sin unintentionally? What do you do when you want to give thanks to God? What do you want to do? How, how should we worship God? How, how should we remember all the great things he's done? Like all of this is going on in Leviticus, which is all about how do we live when God lives among us? He, he lives right here in this, in, this, in this tabernacle. So how do we live and relate to him in that? Uh, all these things are about Israel's distinctiveness from the world, how they are to be God's special people. Book of Numbers tells the story of their journey from Sinai to the plains of Moab, which is just outside the promised land. Numbers is called that because a census is taken of every eligible man to serve in the army, which is about 600,000, which means the total number of Israelites at this point is probably about 2 million. So, right, the promise to Abraham has been fulfilled. They are a great nation, 2 million people. The rest of Numbers talks about how they struggle in the wilderness. They, they complain, they get impatient, they have leadership struggles. Uh, and the result, and this is a significant turn in the story, the result is that that faithless generation must die in the wilderness and not see the promised land. Um, this is part of God's covenant, right? These blessings and these curses for blessings for obedience and curses for disobedience. As a result, they will not enter, enter the land. And so that's why we need Deuteronomy, because Deuteronomy prepares the next generation to enter the land. Uh, they renew their covenant with God. Thus, the second reading of the Ten Commandments in Deuteronomy 5. If you ever wonder why there's two readings of the, well, one was for the first generation and one was for the second generation to get them ready to go in and to live in the land. So now, the Lord intends that he should instruct Israel in every area of life. Only then will Israel truly become a light to the nations. So religion is no merely private affair. The Lord wants his law to permeate every part of his people's experience. And Deuteronomy ends... With, with 27, Deuteronomy 27 and 28, which give us the covenant stipulations. If you obey me, things are going to go well for you. There's going to be blessings for you. If you turn from me, if you follow after other gods, if you disobey me, there's going to be curses for that. And ultimately, this is the backdrop for the eventual exile, right? Because God sets it up. This is how to be faithful to me, and this is what will happen if you do, and this is what will happen if you don't. Um, partly, you will lose the gift of the land. Deuteronomy ends with Moses' death on the border of Canaan. But as true to scene one, we have a people for the king, right? On the precipice, on the edge of going into the land, the second, sec, the second part of that. Whew, I need to catch my breath a second. 
Any questions about that before we uh, move on? That we've, was, got, we've got five of the, what, 40 books in the Old Testament down? Five down. <laughs> a few more to go. <laughs> okay. But the biggest things you see. There's a people for the king, and you see the purpose of that. They have God's special presence with them. They're to be God's special people, and ultimately they're to be the, the conduit, the mediator through which God blesses the whole world through which he renews his creation and saves it from its curse all right scene two ready when do you one of those things that's good you know what i was doing no okay all right turning now to a land for the people now it begins in joshua and this goes to the rest of the old testament okay so Joshua is all about the gift of the land, and it's significant. These former slaves now become heirs. What's interesting is though they have to fight for it, it is repeatedly said over and over again that the land is a gift from God. This is God fulfilling his promise that he gave to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Joshua 5 is a, is a, is a poignant example when the angel of the Lord shows up. <laughs> uh, and it's clearly, it's not Joshua, but the Lord himself who is the general in charge of this campaign. The Lord is the one who will grant success to the Israelites as they enter into the land. So Joshua 9 to 12 is all about conquering the land. We do have to stop here for a second and go, what do we do with this? What do we do with the idea of holy war? What do we do with the idea of God's people coming in and dispossessing other people from their lands, right? Especially when that's a significant part of our own story uh, in this country, right? Of people being dispossessed from their land. And this is not a, uh, <laughs> it's not a cut and dried kind of thing. And there's a lot of mystery here because, again, we're creatures. And here's the, he's the creator, so we can't fully understand always why God does what he does. But there are two hints to sort of help us understand why, uh, why God is okay with this and why his people are okay with this. Number one, according to Genesis 15:16, God does not take the land away from its first inhabitants until their sin has reached such depths that they have in effect, in effect forfeited their right to the land. Genesis 15:16 says the, the sin of the Amorites has not quite reached its full capacity yet. So in other words, he's still, at that point, he was still merciful to the Amorites just in case they turned from their evil ways. But the idea is there comes a point where these, the people are themselves living in these lands are so evil that God is almost sort of bringing future judgment into the present through carrying them out of their own land and sending. That's, that's sort of the root in this holy world. It is, it is an act of God's justice upon people uh, who deserve it, <laughs> who've, been, who've been building up evil for a long, 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 long time. Again, it may not be fully satisfactory, but it helps you understand why these people are being disinherited, but the Bible contends that God's decision to do so is just. It's a part of his justice upon, um, upon an unjust people. And then Deuteronomy 20, 16, 18 uh, re- connects the, this command to destroy the inhabitants of the land. It's motivated further by the danger that the Israelites might succumb to idolatry. So above all else, Israel is to be characterized by the worship of the Lord alone. That's the first commandment. And if the Israelites live among the Canaanites, they are in danger of being lured into the worship of other gods. 
And I think that's less satisfying of an answer. <laughs> I think so. I think the first one is a little more um, cogent and helpful. But this one at least helps us understand how seriously God takes idolatry. Um, that, that I don't think we do today. This is today, it's hard for us to take such idolatry and its dangers this seriously. But a key to understanding the command to clear Canaan of the Canaanites is to recall God's holiness and to be reminded just how much is at stake in the Israelites remaining faithful to the Lord. Again, this is difficult. And, our, and if you go back to our session one, right, our, our social imaginary, that is what we all just agree is to be true, is this ain't right. right? This, this couldn't be like, even if it's God doing this, this can't be a good thing. And yet we have to, we have to acknowledge our roles as, as creatures. And the creator must have reasons that we can't fully understand. These are two hints as to why idolatry is too important. And um, this was in, in, in a... In effect, God enacting his justice ahead of time. But still, that doesn't solve it all, right? It's difficult for us to understand. But that's what happens. Genesis, Joshua 9 through 12, they conquer the land. In Joshua 13 and 19, they distribute the land to the 12 tribes of Israel. So Joshua ends with the Israelites established in the land, right? This gift, this promise has come to reality. The stage now is set for Israel to live as a light to the nations. God's response to mutiny and his good creation has been to elect one man, Abraham, and then to recover part of the earth and to place Abraham's descendants there. Israel in the land is meant to be a taste of what God intends for the whole of his creation. And again, like I said earlier, this land is supposed to be like a second Eden, a place of rest. But also like original Eden, it's a place of testing and temptation, as you're going to see. So you move into the book of Judges. Uh, this is the failure of Israel to be the light to the nations. And this is where you especially see time and time again, the Israelites continue to do what's evil in the eyes of the Lord. And it's, the system starts out, right? They're evil in the eyes of the Lord. So the Lord hands them over to their enemies and they cry out in their oppression. And he sends a judge to come and rescue them. And, and they clean it up for a little while until they descend into evil again. And the whole, the whole cycle goes over and over again. So Judges tells the story of a spiral down into rebellion and disaster at every level, every level in the nation of Israel. And again, what is the tendency in the book of Judges? To do what is right in their own eyes. And what is that? Autonomy, right? That's the original sin over and over again. But this time, Judges introduces uh, a, a new thing, which is the reason people are doing what's right in their own eyes is because they don't have a king. And that's new. Right? That's a new development in the story. It says, in those days, Israel had no king, and therefore, everyone did what was right in their own eyes. And so now we're starting, this nation is starting to turn towards this kingship, right? a monarchy, which is, which is new. So as we move into the book of Samuel, you see how Israel is trans- transformed into a kingdom with a king, a monarch. And lots of people ask the question, uh, especially because Saul was the first king and he was a terrible king. Did Israel need a king? Did, did God intend for them to have a king? Or was this them, was God just giving them what they wanted, even though he didn't want them to have a king? And uh, there are different opinions on this, but mine is, uh, yes, God always intended Israel to have a king, actually. This is part of his design. If you read Genesis 17, one of his promises to Abraham is kings are going to come from you, right? And then in Deuteronomy 17, there's, uh, there's like instructions for how to be a faithful king. So I think it was always a part of his design, but what's construed so negatively in Samuel is the reason that people want a king. 
And that reason is we want to be like all the other nations. We want a king like they have a king, which is obviously against everything God's been saying, which is I want you to be distinct from the nations, right? I want you to be different from them. And so what you see in Samuel is an unhealthy use or a, or a misdirection of a good gift, like so much of the fall. Um, but this, I think it was one of God's original promises to Israel is that they, they would become a great nation and a strong political leadership is an important part of coming into nationhood. So God always intended for them to have a king, but their first one, Saul, is very unfit. And also he is a, he is a foreshadowing of lots of bad kings to come and how the fate of the nation rides on whether the, how faithful the king is. All right, the grim history of Saul points out how the institution of the human monarch is dangerous for Israel. God wants an under king who enhances and facilitates his own sovereign rule over Israel, a king who will enable the Israelites to live up to their covenant calling. This is why God must deal so decisively with the disobedience of Israel's first human king. So you get to, we get to trace the rise and fall of the monarchy. <laughs> it's told in three Old Testament double books, First and Second Samuel, First and Second Kings, and First and Second Chronicles. But now that we get the unfit king out of the way, we come to the true king, the the covenant with David. And again, another special relationship through which God works out his kingdom. And interestingly, in the covenant with David, God promises uh, five things. Number one, to make David's name great. Number two, to provide for his people, Israel, a place where God will plant them so that they are secure. And three, to give them rest from from their enemies. Does that sound familiar? Abraham again, right? All these build on, deliberately evoke the Abrahamic covenant. But now here's two more. To establish David's dynasty and to establish David's son to build God's permanent house. So in these last two, kingship is grafted into the covenant with Moses. Israel is now officially constituted as a kingdom. Israel will now fulfill its calling to be a light to the nations as a kingdom. Israel's human king will lead the people to be a holy nation and a priestly kingdom. And he will do so as he removes idolatry from the land and gives Israel rest and shalom. Now, David's story is a little complicated, right? At first, this starts out really good with David, but then what follows is his own. You see it. You see in the pattern, right? Things start out well. And then they descend into sin and chaos again, as David himself uh, is a murderer and an adulterer and, you know, uh, lots of other things and has lots of errors in judgment, even with his own children. But interestingly, despite all these struggles and sins, David becomes the standard by which every king after him is measured. You can read that in 1 Kings fifteen three, Like, they're all trying to measure up to the greatness of who David was. So even though he was flawed, uh, it, he, he, he was repentful, right? He wrote Psalm 51 after he did all those horrible things, right? He was still a man after God's own heart and becomes the standard for future kings. Unfortunately, same thing happens with his son, right? Starts out great. The book of Kings is all about covenant failure, though. Solomon begins to rule wisely. If David was best known for his trust in the Lord and his profound spirituality, Solomon is renowned for his wisdom, right? The guy wrote Proverbs and Ecclesiastes. Solomon's greatest achievement is that he gets, he gets to build the temple, right? The permanent dwelling place. Again, presence. It's like another Eden, again. In 1 Kings 8, the glory cloud comes and fills the temple, and God, again, dwells with his people. He has an address on earth among his people. 
So Solomon's time at first is like this great fulfillment of all these promises, like it's happening. Israel's now a great nation. They've claimed a homeland as, as promised, and now the Lord is dwelling amongst them. Like it's all coming together, so you think. The monarchy appears to have brought peace and prosperity, and now perhaps Israel can draw the nations to God. That was the whole point, right? I'm giving you all these things so you can bless the nations. But then Solomon himself turns towards idolatry and violates the heart of the covenant. Uh, He doesn't turn this great nation outward towards others. Um, He's just content to enjoy the blessings for themselves without pursuing that towards the nations. And so, again, summarizing vast, <laughs> the vast parts of the Old Testament. What happens next after Solomon's great decline is that the, the kingdom is divided. And so the kingdom is rent in two, into a northern and a southern kingdom. After Solomon's death, partly because Solomon's uh, enforced slave labor on, on his other tribesmen, because of that, they split into a northern kingdom, which is called Israel, which is confusing, Uh, under King Jeroboam, and a southern kingdom, which is called Judah, under King Rehoboam. You guys all with me on that? Jeroboam, Rehoboam, Israel, Judah, they split. Um, So, uh, the nation of Israel is now divided against itself, and now both kingdoms are far more vulnerable to their enemies. And at this point, where you get, prophets have been important always in Israel's story, but now they get really important, (laughs) because... Uh, part of the role of prophets is to challenge unfaithful Israel and particularly challenge unfaithful kings. They're like a balance of power. They're a check on the kings. You get, this is where Elijah and Elisha come from. It's that second bullet point under the importance of prophets. At this point in Israel's story, the prophets begin to play an increasingly important role in the biblical story. All the prophetic books in the Old Testament come from the time of the monarchy or after its demise. The prophetic office thus appears in Israel as a counterbalance to the powerful office of the kingship. Hence, we often find a prophet in bitter confrontation with the king of his day. Elijah versus Ahab, which is also Yahweh versus Baal. But with all these successive kings, we see this steady slide towards exile. So what happens? Assyria is the great Middle Eastern empire of the day. And during the reign of Israel's king, this is the northern kingdom, right? Uh, Hosea. Assyria invades the northern kingdom, lays siege to its capital, Samaria, for three years, and then deports the Israelites to Assyria in 722 B.C., as narrated in 2 Kings 17. This marks the end of the northern kingdom of Israel, which, based on the story we just told, is like almost unthinkable, right? The whole point was for God to get a people and to put them in a land, and now half of them, the northern kingdom, is taken out of this land. So that raises some concerns, right? This, and we have a little discourse on exile and why, um, why this is so earth-shattering for them. Because exile raises the most fundamental questions in the minds of faithful Israelites. Wasn't the land a gift from the Lord himself? How then could he allow his people to be taken from it? Where are God's promises? Has God really abandoned his vows to Abraham, Moses, and David? But the answer that's given to us in 2 Kings 17 The narrator makes it clear that the Lord punished the northern kingdom in this way because of their disobedience to the covenant. They are exiled not because of Assyria's power, because the Lord cannot stomach their idolatry anymore. Again, he was long-suffering, he was patient for so long, but there comes a point where God says, that's it. And the covenant stipulations we gave way back then in Deuteronomy are coming, and I'm going to let other people conquer your land and take you out of it. 
Now the question is, what about the southern kingdom? <laughs> is there hope for them, especially since that contains the line of David, the, the, the dynasty that's supposed to last forever? Well, unfortunately, under Hezekiah, well, actually, under Hezekiah, Judah is miraculously delivered from Assyria. So they conquer the northern kingdom, but they are stopped from conquering the southern kingdom at that point. But then a Babylon comes along, and they're the new world power, and, and the people continue to turn towards apostasy and rebel against God. So therefore, under Zedekiah's reign, not Hezekiah, Zedekiah's reign, Babylon conquers the southern kingdom and sets fire to the temple and the king's palace. Jerusalem is reduced to ruins, and most of Judah's people are exiled to Babylon in 586 B.C. And that's narrated in 2 Kings 25. So this is like the low point, right? What do we do with this? Like everything that God has promised seems to be nothing. And so it's a legitimate question at this point in the Bible go, is this it? Like, is this the end? As we follow the biblical story of Israel at this point, we might be tempted to write the end. For the Israelites being marched off, for the Israelites being marched off as slaves to Babylon, it certainly must seem like the end. What is what has come of God's great promises to Abraham? and of his covenant with Israel at Sinai, and of his vow that David's house would go on forever. The house of the Lord himself has been destroyed. Where was the Lord while Babylon triumphed over Israel? Have God's purposes for his people finally run into the sand? Worse, have God's purposes to redeem the creation through Israel failed? Like Everything we talked about, right? Presence in the temple, gone, decimated. A people completely unfaithful and scattered throughout, right? A land, gone, right? Everything that God has promised seems to have come to naught. And the only person who can answer this question of, is this it? Is this the end? Is this the the end of the redemption story? The only person who can answer that is God himself, which again makes the voices of the prophets at this point really, really important to understand, to try to understand what's happened with Israel. This is where you get the post-exile prophets, And the message of all these prophets is pretty uniform, which is unless God's people repent, unless they return to him and obey him, judgment will continue to come. All right, the just judgment of God. So you got prophets such as Ezekiel that insist that actually exile is not the end, that the Lord's purposes remain, as do his promises to Abraham, to Moses, and to David. Like these judgment oracles of the prophets are mercifully interspersed with oracles of hope and a future for God's people. Thus, even Jeremiah promises that the nation will return from exile and once again occupy the land of promise. This is important. Because the land and the temple were such important symbols to Israel of its nationhood and of its identity as the people beloved of God, exile was a catastrophic experience for the Israelites. Read Lamentations, right? Especially Lamentations 1-4. Read some of the Psalms, like Psalm 80. This this kind of literature was actually crucial for their survival, to, to find language to lament before God what has happened. And it's also a note to say God, read, read the book of Hosea to see how God agonized over this decision to send his people in exile. We should not think that the Lord has been quick to cast his people out of the land. On the contrary, God is portrayed throughout the Old Testament as moving slowly and regretfully toward his judgment. Hosea 11 is where he says, how can I give you up, right? You're my, you're my child, you're my son, you're my daughter. Books like Daniel and Esther, hello, deal with the conflicts of loyalty of people living out as faithful Jewish people in exile and trying to understand what that looks like. And then you have the next chapter, which is Ezra and Nehemiah, which is actually Israel returning to the land, but it's not so great, not as great as you might think it would sound. 
So in 539, which is 50 years after the temple was destroyed, uh, now a new, uh, a new rulers around the Persians and their king Cyrus defeats Babylon and allows the Israelites to return to their land if they want to. And many of them do, but not all of them, right? Esther and Mordecai stayed back. Um, but some people return under Jeshua and Zerubbabel. They begin to rebuild the altar of the God of Israel. What is that? Symbol of God's presence. First thing we want to do is give a symbol that God is once again with us. Then under the prophetic influence of Haggai and Zechariah, some 20 years after their return from exile in Babylon, they rebuilt the temple and dedicate it uh, back to the Lord in 516 BC. Ezra shows up 60 years later and he tries to keep the people from idolatry, trying to recover the law so they can live as the faithful people. Nehemiah shows up and he rebuilds the walls. You see what's happening, right? They're, they're, they're trying to put it back together. We got the altar again. We got the temple again. We got the people. We got a, we got a city again. Let's put the, the walls up. They renew their covenant with the Lord. But in sum, here's where we end at the end of the Old Testament. The future of Israel remains uncertain. Israelites are back in the land, but even with the temple rebuilt, its existence as a nation is tenuous. The temple has nothing like its former glory. Jeremiah speaks of a new covenant and Ezekiel of a new temple. Isaiah prophesies the advent of a suffering servant who will truly be a light to the nations. These images together craft a vision for a time when God will act decisively to establish his purposes in his creation and to establish his people as truly his people. The Messiah, the anointed one, will come and Israel will be genuinely converted. The hearts of the people turn to God at last, as in Micah 5. God has not forgotten his promise. God will renew Israel and then draw all nations to himself as he promised in Abraham. And in that process, the whole of the creation is going to be renewed. God's kingdom will be established over the whole earth. With this hope, the Old Testament ends. Okay. Uh, Yes. So um, that's it. So a people for the king. Uh, a land for the people and you get to see this whole story of what God wanted for Israel and then what happened for them and now I want to give you a moment to uh, kind of talk amongst yourself as your table and process some of the things you heard I put some questions down there like what stood out to you from this overview of the story of Israel again this is a part of the Bible some of us many of us aren't very familiar with and so be interesting if you had any aha moments along the way uh, how does God's covenant with Abraham, Moses, and David help you understand what it means to be a Christian today? Because, again, this is our story. Uh, question three, how do we translate God's presence, people, and place, our land today? How does this help us navigate current controversies about modern-day Israel? Um, how does this set the stage for Jesus? What are your biggest takeaways? And so give you a moment to discuss amongst yourselves, and then we'll come back together and discuss. I was hoping that you would answer. No, 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 you got to answer those questions. <laughs> Thank <laughs> you.